Hi, book club members. I'm Jen Bozier. And I'm Carrie Honey. And this is Warhammer 40k Book Club, where we read from a crag. This is episode number 27, in which we're discussing Fabius Bile, Clone Lord by Josh Reynolds. It is the continuing saga of Fabulous Bill as he attempts to explore new worlds, make new creations, mend the fence with the Emperor's children, maybe? We posted several questions on our website, wh40kbookclub.com, and we encourage participation in our discussions via Twitter, YouTube, our site, or Encrypted Vox channel. Spoiler warning, if you haven't yet read the book, go to the site, check out the book and the questions, and come back here because we'll be talking about this in great detail from start to finish. I think Carrie and I have a lot of thoughts on this book. <laughs> with that, let's dive in. Carrie's very angry. Did you like the book, Pumpkin? Okay, so I rated it four out of five on Goodreads because it was a good book, but I'm still angry. I, because of Josh Reynolds, I will never be able to love or trust again. Okay, so I actually had the opposite reaction to it. So I actually, I liked a lot of the parts of the book, but I didn't really like the whole of it. Um, But... The one thing that I will say is that Josh Reynolds has, for the second time, taken one of my absolute hated tropes and made it amazing. The first was in Cal Jericho when he he manages to pull off the magical MacGuffin, which like very few things have ever done. And when I got to the end of that book, I was like, oh, that's a worthy MacGuffin. I hate Deus Ex Machina tropes. And I got to the end of this and I was like, well, shit, that works. But it's because he also invoked one of my all-time favorite Warhammer 40k figures, which we'll talk about later. But, so what parts, what parts stood out to you? Where, where, where did the bad your, book touch me? Where did the, in your heart did the book touch you? I think it's obvious to anyone who's listened to this podcast before. And, um, I mean, there was lots of parts that stood, stood out to me. Mm-hmm. And it's like, for example, um... When he's kind of in that tribunal court or whatever with all of the emperor's children with their phoenix conclave and someone, they're all wearing masks and he, one of them speaks and he's like, I know you. It's like, Lucius, is that you? Lucius goes take off his mask. He's like, no, no, no. Like, keep it on. Like, I don't need to see that. Which kind of makes me laugh thinking about everything else horrible thing that he's created. But that is just a step too far. (laughs) Right. Lucius is just a hard no. I mean, to be fair, isn't he though? Well, I'm after seeing him on the cover of um, what is it, Ian St. Martin's book, the the Eternal Blade. I'm like, With the oh, tongue no. coming out. Well, not like that, but just like the way his arms are coming out in ribbons, the muscle, like ribbons, muscles, and just no. He's going for a certain aesthetic. I have no idea what that aesthetic is. It's eye chic. Oh, oh, okay. I got nothing. Okay, I like it. I chic. Okay. Yeah, that's what they're going for. Although I will say, if if anyone can come up with I chic, it would be the Emperor's Children. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, God, yes. And actually, so him, reading about him when he was like, oh, Lucius, I could not get over Eidolon. Like, my first reaction when Eidolon showed up, I was like, you're dead. Oh, wait, no, you got fixed. Oh, shit, yuck. And when they described, like, how his skull and his skin didn't fit. Right. 
and they were talking about him like trying to laugh and stuff you know what i pictured was actually from men in black vincent d'onofrio is the uh bug oh okay that's what i pictured of because remember at the end there the mate like his face yeah, did yeah. not fit yeah that's what i pictured because i was like this is this is awful i mean, i guess what do you expect when not you're one lot. of Ful- fulgrim's bill's first um experiments i mean it was back on before they went to istvam and they learned about the war singers and they changed his vocal cords to be able to you know kind of like almost the prototype for the noise marine in a way he's able to change mm-hmm. his voice to beat down the war singers um i did like when they mentioned eidolon when uh Flavius goes to talk to the noise marines, the cacophony, mm-hmm. and he mentions Eidolon, and Ramos is just like, meh. Right. <laughs> like, you guys don't like anyone. <laughs> well, I mean, he was, they mentioned this earlier, later in the book, but Eidolon was the least liked, not even just of the commanders, of the captains, of their yeah. lodge. Because he was mm-hmm. just an ass. He Everybody. Was, well, I'm so biased because I think if you've listened to this podcast for any amount of time, you know that Carrie really likes Fulgrim and likes Saber's children, and I don't. I pre heresy. Let me let me let me qualify. Obviously, this. obviously pre heresy. Fuck them now, because I mean, I mean, I can only take so many things made of living flesh that won't die. Just Mm-mm. yeah, and just I don't like them at all. Um, which we'll talk more about in a bit. But um, I really, you know what, that part, that scene, I liked seeing Eidolon, but I really didn't enjoy that scene that much. For me, most of the scenes that stuck out, stuck out, it's a past tense of stuck, guys, um, that stuck out to me were with his companions. So the first one that I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing, is actually when Savona goes to talk to Korag. First off, can we talk about Pezpuz? I'm just glad that the demon dog didn't die. I just pictured this giant, sentient, evil snail, especially when they talked about its eye stalks mm-hmm. and how it was kind of like ripply and stuff. And I was cheering for Pezpuz when he was like jumping on top of the Necrons and disintegrating them. Yeah. This is amazing. Um, but the first thing that stuck out to me that I really liked is for, I like him in general but when he's talking with Savona and she's like what do you get out of serving Fabulous Bill and he is like well you know I make all these great plagues and then he finds cures and then I make them stronger isn't that a great game it was just so very Death Guard this right. idea that they're just like oh yeah it's just, just a game right like yeah that seems very Death Guard I mean, that was um, one of the first scenes where I was like, oh. "Well, Vorix, kind of the same. He just wanted to sit and study." Yep. Yes, they. Uh, of course, I liked just... when he asked her, "Why does she stay?" And her response was, "Because he keeps things interesting." Yeah, valid. Very totally valid. Well, and I liked that too because I kind of, I'll be honest, in the beginning of the book, I was like, "Oh." So here's another thing that really stuck out to me. I figured that Scologram 
and Savona were going to be the two big traitors, right? That it was going to be the whole book of those two working against him. And when she revealed that she's like, no, I'm actually kind of happy here. He keeps things interesting. I was like, oh, I didn't see that coming. And Scalagram too, when he comes to tell Bill and he's like, yeah, they came to talk to me. That shocked oh. me, actually. It shocked me, too. I did not see that coming. And even then I was like, are you playing both sides? Like, I actually wondered the same thing. I was like, double agency. Because, I mean, like he seems wolf. like someone who would, um, he's a survivor. Very much so. Um, but at the same time, though, he would never be part of the Emperor's children. They they were very much, you know, pure. You know, we were part of the third. They would know, they would have probably taken him back to um, Abaddon in a heartbeat, especially since it uh, sounds like Eidolon was already, you know, uh, allying mm -hmm. with Abaddon in the first place. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if anything, if he's going to be safe, it's going to be with Bill. Because right. one, he can learn, as he said, he can learn a lot from him. And two, Bill doesn't care what Legion you're from. As long as you are useful. Right. As you're useful and you do what you are told. Yes. Very much so. The scene in this book, the last one that I'll mention specifically, I actually have several dog years in my book where I would like read something and I was like, that's funny. I really like that. But the one that really stood out to me was toward the end when he's talking with Trazen. And uh, I was reading this aloud. I actually read this aloud. Again, this is the point we've come to in the quarantine. I've read this aloud to my family. And um, when the Harlequins show up and Bill thinking as quickly as he does, speaking of survivors is like, would you like to have them? Cause Trayson kind of marvels at them, right? And he's like, are they yours to offer? I'm offering. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. I laughed so hard about that. That's complete. I totally imagine them because, you know, they stumble out. They don't know exactly where they are. They just know they're trying to look for Bill. And then they're getting captured. They were like, well, we took a wrong turn at Albuquerque. Oh, my gosh. They should have taken the left at Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. I actually, like, in general, that whole scene when Trayson's like, I didn't open a wet wave portal. And Bill gets the, oh, no. <laughs> like, but I... I liked the whole scene because they're so ridiculous, right? Right. And the fact that Trayson's like, huh, well, I haven't seen these ones. <laughs> <laughs> but what did what did you think in general? Did that whole did any part of that scene really stick out to you when they're in Trayson's collection? The part that stood out to me was when he's gathering them up and they're just like panicking, so their dance and rhythm and song is all getting out of whack mm -hmm. and Bill's taunting them. He's like, he's like, so what part of the story is this? I think it's getting lost in translation. I was a little shocked with the Calf scene where it was the word bearers and the ultramarines fighting and they realized they're like, oh shit, these are not holograms. No, it's like he captured a moment in time. Mm -hmm. For his collection. Right. It's like going to the most exciting museum you've ever been to. Yeah, Sakura's reaction to it was really haunting. Because he's like, I was there. Like, because he's actually pointing to people. He's like, you know, I remember that and that. And then he realizes, oh, and then when one of their eyes twitch, he's like, whoa, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, just that whole. Well, and I liked it because it was the first real emotional outburst we've seen from Sakara when all of a sudden he's like, not only was I here, I know these guys. Right. And that was 
Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the Emperor's Children. Maybe you've heard of them. As a legion, I think this goes back to the scene that you were talking about earlier when he's in that conclave. They're a weird bunch. I look at them and I see them as being deeply in denial. You have all of these uh, all of these Emperor's Children. Merrick's is a good example of just if we can just get dad back or if we could just like get our legion back together, everything's going to be fine. And maybe it would if they would figure out how to stop blaming one another for their own mistakes. I mean, I, would, I texted you like early on with the book, like I was getting so sick and tired of them blaming Bill for all their problems after Canticle City and um, and then him getting mad at Abaddon for Canticle City. He's like, he ruined all my work. And they were like, but you brought him here. It's like, yeah, but y'all took Horace's body. You know, this right. is, there's a lot of blame going around here. And much as I don't like Abaddon, like, he's blameless here. All right? Right. You guys got Actually, his attention. It's the one thing that you can thank him for. <laughs> right. He kills me to do it, too. But I'm like, right. yeah, he kind of he kind of did us a solid Right, because as they were realizing when he took he took Horace's body, and they're all like realizing what that can possibly mean and how bad that is for everyone involved. So there's a lot of no one's accepting. You know, Bill's all mad because he ruined my life's work, and they're all mad that you you got his attention, even though they stole the body, and Bill wanting the body kind of brought it all work together they're all to blame for this and they just well, refuse and, to right and not only do they, they want to blame everybody and they don't like or trust that many of them so like everybody wants to be the guy who really reunites the legions right the radiant wanted to reunite the legion but in this book when they mention that everyone's like oh yeah but that guy was a douche and like you know and they're like hey when they go to the cacophony and hey we're going to get the Legion back together. Oh yeah, but that guy's a douche. Like the fact that they're all like, we want to get this Legion back together, but we don't want to play with those guys. So it's well, so much you know, the blame. None of them like one another. There's like a quote I wrote down from Vile. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's during that. He's like, one would think that if brotherhood had meant so much to us, we would not have discarded it so blithely all those years ago. Yes. That is, I really do hate when he makes good points. Same. Because I have to remind myself that even a broken watch is right twice a day. But I really hate when he makes good points. Because when he said that, I was like, thank you. Yes. All of this talk and all of these people, like, we just got to get the Legion back together. We just got to get the Legion back together. But, I know but not with him. And not right. with him. But not with that guy. And you know what? Really, it's your fault that the Legion fell apart to begin with. It's like, it's like they forgot that they're brothers and you don't get to pick family. No, you really don't. And you just have to make it work. And there's a little bit of arrogance in there too, right? Well, that guy can't get the Legion back together, but I can. Or the guy that I've chosen to follow can. It, which I think the arrogance really comes down to everything, the blame too, right? Well, oh, totally. clearly it's not my fault. It's your fault. Which, you know, it, can go back to, you know, worshiping Slanesh and with the whole, um, you know, excesses. That's not my fault. Right. 
So does this book make them a little more sympathetic? Do you think? Like, do you no. like and understand them? <laughs> okay, well, never mind. Um, I was until the end when he proved how petty he really is. Well, not just Bill, but the Emperor's children in general. No. You know, as much as I dislike the Emperor's children pre and post heresy, I, they actually went up a steam in me a little bit. And it's because of our next point, which is specifically about Flavius Alconex. AKA Flavor Flav. Flavor Flav! As soon as you called him that, I just started calling that. So when I was reading aloud, my poor daughter has no concept of any of this now because it was fabulous Bill and Flavor Flav. Um, and I was getting really frustrated because when you're trying to read a scene aloud and you have Eidolon talking about Abaddon and Flavius and Fabius, it doesn't flow right off the tongue <laughs> as much as you would think. Um, but anyways, so I actually, we'll talk a bit more about this. I didn't really think he was a great antagonist at the end when he sees Fulgrim and he's just like, dad, oh yeah. my God, we are saved. And when he and a bunch of the other Marines just drop to their knees immediately and are like, thank God. They actually went up a little. I, I still don't like them. I felt a little sympathy for them at, in at, that moment. At that moment, I, I did, especially when they start sobbing. That one, yes. that one Emperor's children that um, Arian saw that just had his head in his hands and was just crying. And he's like, dude, what is wrong with you? And he's like, why is he mad at us? What did we do? We've done everything for him. And I was like, oh, punk. And Agori, when Agori kills him, I felt so bad. So I was like, can, can you not see that he's having a moment? It's probably, actually, you know what? Honestly, in a weird way, she was probably doing him a solid. But yes, I had the same thing when he was sitting there. Why is he mad at us? Oh, that actually pulled at my heart. And I hate the Emperor's children. And this pulled at my heartstrings. It's like, oh, God. It's like we almost saw some glimpses of pre-heresy Emperor's children when they saw an untainted pre-heresy innocent Fulgrim. It was like when he first met his legion the very first time. And they kept saying that too, right? Well, they kept referencing back to that the first time that they saw the Phoenician. And so... And I, we'll talk more about Flavius here because at that moment, my entire perception of that character just turned on its head. Because was he a good antagonist for Bill, do you think? I don't know if he's that much of an antagonist as he was like a guard dog. I felt that... I mean, I, I guess, really he, you know... He was one. He was definitely. I mean, he's a typical emperor's children antagonist. Underestimated everything, overestimated his ability and talents. That arrogance again, right? Where yeah, he basically assumes that he has played everything. And my favorite, favorite thing about him, I think, if I were to like talk about why I didn't think he was a good antagonist, is that he recognizes that Arian's a problem. Mm -hmm. So he goes and he kind of has that little square off with him. And he leaves and is like, oh, I have the full measure of that guy. I don't think you do. Right. And especially when Arian mentions later, he's like, yeah, I have the full measure of him. Yeah, you just, you wrote off a world eater. Not the smartest. Who was, had calmatives 
in his system so he wouldn't feel the bite of the nails. Yes. I think he grossly underestimated how many sedatives Arian had in his bloodstream. Yes. Like, yeah. Um, which again, is that arrogance? Totally that arrogance. Right. But, and then like the scologram thing, I think he just took that at face value. Like, dude, everybody hates you. So clearly if we're offering you a get out of jail ticket, you're going to take it. And who was the other person he tried to approach? And I can't remember. He tried to approach that. He, somebody got somebody else over to side too. And I was just like, okay, this big showdown and you have grossly underestimated. I feel he was not a good chat match of wits for Bill. No. No, but at the same time, same time, Bill kind of pulled that win out of his ass. To be fair, like... He was almost yeah. a uh, museum exhibit. Mm-hmm. He was almost exhibit Q. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I don't get the impression that Flava Flav really knew that that was the full bargain either. No, no. Obviously, he wouldn't know. I, I don't know if he would know the whole thing about the Necrons. Because I think if he did, he wouldn't have sent his people down there because they all get a little surprised by it right so even he does and just just i don't know those asshole things that idolin idolin has done just just typical him mr lord commander classic idolon pretty oh my god like how he just kept up those blood angels for bait and pre-heresy and yeah yeah so, Thank God like, for Loken and Torgadon to take his ass down a notch. That was like one of the best parts in those early books. Actually, that was, I think I meant, I don't know if I mentioned this last podcast, but that was one of my favorite scenes in, um, I think it's Horus Rising, when they meet up with the Emperor's children. It's either, Loken, it's either Horus Rising or the second one, one of the two. Yeah, I can't remember which one it is, but when he duels Lucius... Okay, and Lucius, oh, it's going to be fun. Come on, come on, come on. And he's kind of goading him because he knows he's going to win. And Loken's just like, whatever. <laughs> when he cuts Lucius and Lucius is just like, what? Hey, reading that, I remember going, and that's, take that. And thus started Lucius's habit of cutting himself. So maybe not the best move in hindsight, <laughs> but at the time it was very satisfying. Yeah. Whoops. Whoopsie. Not as satisfying <laughs> to me as Torgadon dressing down Eidolon in front of everybody. Pretty much nothing's that satisfying. Huh? I said pretty much nothing is that satisfying. There are a few. Oh, epic- contraire. I mean, there was a time that Reboot uh, dressed down Father Matthew. That was quite satisfying. That's never gonna. That's always gonna be your first love, I think. Well, I mean, <laughs> am I wrong? <laughs> Were you not no. were you not entertained when it happened? I was quite entertained. I remember reading it going, That's right. Because <laughs> yeah, that whole scene was great. But yeah, so I think I don't know, my whole opinion I didn't really care for him as a villain until the end. When all of a sudden I was like, Oh no, he has a heart. And then I it's- think for me. It was almost oh, like seeing Fulgrim 
pre-heresy fulgrim, innocent fulgrim, washed away the uh, slanesh out of them. Because I think, for me, they feel very much like children. No pun intended. They feel very much like these lost children. And the idea that dad's back, innocent dad. Now we, to your point, now we can go back to being what we were too. And that to me, I felt so sad for it. Because again, it was this kind of inherently childish, like, well, we'll just say we're sorry and everything will be fine. And I wonder what Lucius and Eidolon would have said if they saw him. I feel like Eidolon would have had some complex thoughts there. <laughs> to say the least. To say the least. That whole thing. But so, you know, it was like the whole thing with Fulgrim, what he said, we told this to Igori. He's like, but this is what I do. I see things that are broken and I fix them. So when he hears about his legion, he's like, I can fix them. I can fix everything. It's like, oh, sweetie. Yes. Which is so, you know, and I'm sure you saw it too. The big parallel here from what Fulgrim did to fix things on the ship and help them take back the ship to as how he won over Chemos. The planet was broken and he went in to fix it because people were starving and didn't have enough water. Yes, and I want to talk a lot more about that because there's so much to unpack there and I have a lot of strong thoughts. <laughs> really quickly, though, I want to break down. There's a lot of interesting things going on in this book with Bill's companions. Other so, than the fact they're far more interesting than him? This is another book which I think shocked me because last book, I don't think we really got to know them that well. We got to know Oleander very well. Uh, but I think we got to learn about all of his companions more this time. And it's, they're all very surprising in their own way. And I want to break down a few of them, like Agori, for instance. The fact that, and you kind of got this impression last book, but I think you got it even more this book, that there's very much a father-child relationship there. Right. That she looks up to him as this father, and he definitely looks at her as, as this daughter he never had. There's a strong affection there. Mm -hmm. But let me ask your opinion on this. When she releases Fulgrim and all of the Glan Towns bow down and she has this glimpsing thought where she's like, ooh, I think we just were given a test and we failed. Well, Thoughts? she was right. Yeah. And that... Despite what Bill says about not wanting to be a god, he fucking does. He sure did not like when his toys weren't worshipping him, did he? No. And and I don't think it was at that scene, scene you're talking about, I don't think that was worship as much as it was obedience. Because he shows up, even though they have taken back his ship, all right? All he can do is like, I told you to stay put. I told you not to do this. If they had done nothing, maybe you wouldn't have a ship. But the point well, is that... they had no way of knowing that he was going to make a devil's bargain with treason. Like, Because as you said earlier, right. had none of that happened, they were fucked. Oh, yeah. Well, 
But the whole thing with that is that they disobeyed him. And then when Fulgrim says all is forgiven, that's when Bill snapped because he was like, I did not give you permission to forgive these people. Mm-hmm. I told you to stay put. I did not tell you to do any of this. You disobeyed me. And I think the fact that Agori got hurt, I'm not sure if he would have been that angry had she not gotten shot. And especially if she had not gotten shot defending Fulgrim. I think that whole, but I think that speaks so much about her. Would remember, he told her, do whatever you need to to keep him safe. Right. Which, but let me ask you this do you think she was following Bill's order in that moment, or do you think she was doing what she felt was right? Because that's a big thing that we've already mentioned with Agori is there's all these things that he's like, I, that shouldn't be possible. Right. I didn't program that into you. Right. I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, there was that whole thing that, you know, if he told her, ignore him, don't worry about it, she never would have done anything. And I think it was because he told her that he would, that Fulgrim was very important. So it was all about doing what he asked. Right. The problem is, is that they didn't follow his orders the way he wanted them to. Right. And I'll be interested to see what happens to Agori in the next book. She's already established, or they've already established that she's the weaker of the pack mates now. She's old. Because she's old. It's not her fault. She's just old. Um, Some of them are younger. Some of them are less obedient to Bill because they're a little watered down. Um, Especially in a post-Fulgrim world for them. That might be interesting bouncing over to the other person to whom she's probably closest other than fabulous bill is arian arian totally biased because he's my favorite character but i loved this book and i loved him in it i loved when he talks to agori and he basically gives her permission when she's like what do i do here and he's like let me tell you about the butcher's nails (laughs) i have these things in my head they're supposed to make me a rage monster and kill everything. And I don't. Because I see the futility of it. And I do like when she leaves and he's like, I might not have been, I, I might not have said, should have said that. <laughs> right. <laughs> it reminded me a little bit of Hagrid. I should not have said that. Very much so. Because he just realized like, yeah, I just inadvertently just gave her permission to act without without telling her to act was it totally inadvertently though but i liked that well i think he realized that she was gonna do it no matter what so at least he could do is make her feel better about it Mm -hmm. i it's refreshing to see a world eater in general that has control over himself now granted as we said it involves a shit ton of narcotics but or just said it gives just like horse tranquilizers all day long right um but that was refreshing when he's in that standoff and he's like all right fuck this <laughs> he gets ready like flushes all the stuff yep. he gives out of his system that was hilarious to me because again reading it aloud i was like oh shit gonna get real only an idiot gets into melee range with a fucking world eater <laughs> My husband was even like, yeah, maybe like mortar range. Right. <laughs> Depending on the one. But here's one of the things that I wonder now is that 
he's always very much kept that reined in. Do we think there's going to be any lasting consequences of that? No. I hope not. Because no. if he comes back and he's a giant rage monster, I'm going to be really sad. Because then Josh Reynolds will broke, have broken my heart. And he can't break both of our hearts. Maybe now Sorry. I want him to. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I was willing to break Carrie's heart, but don't break mine. <laughs> I'm bring Arian into this. Um, so he's kind of an interesting guy. Sakara. And Bill have a very interesting conversation about mid-book that I think was very spot on. Well, yes. I mean, because talk about someone who knows Bill better than he thinks that this guy would know him. Oh, yeah. And he's Sakara like, definitely sees Bill. You know, and then Sakara, you know, he's like, oh, here you go. You're going to come down here. You're going to put this argument against me. We're going to argue. You're going to refuse to see that I have a point and you're going to huff off and then you'll be back down here maybe a decade later. We'll have the same argument again. It's yeah. like, it's well, like, well, and in a way, you know, especially with what uh, the Veil Walker says to Bill at the end, that's kind of how he runs his life. Yeah. Just keeps going back into a circle. Yes, he's a very circular creature. And because, again, much like in last book, he gets that glimmer of hope, right? Oh, maybe we could rebuild the third. You know what? Let's rebuild the third. This is going to be awesome. We'll make it great. It's going to be awesome. And then at the end of the book, no. Why did I even think this would be a good idea? This is terrible. No, 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 no. Well, here's why. And yet he does it again. All right. Page 443. And when there were nothing more than a memory, his new legion would emerge and set about rewarding the galaxy to his satisfaction. A new crusade lead his new humanity into the rightful place among the eternal stars. Yes. So has to be on his terms, his creations, his ideas. Yes. So the last thing I want to say about Sakara is that I think he hit the nail on the head when he's like, I'm useful to you, but mostly you just want to come down here and have a person to argue with. And I actually took that to mean, you just want a friend. You just want a person to talk to. Someone who's not so a like, sycophant. Yes. So in some ways, I think he likes Sakara as being this weird, perverted form of a friend but one that fabulous bill definitely has control of but that's that's bill's mo it's like one of the many reasons why he's called a spider i mean yes it's because you know he kind of creeps in his own corner with his web and the chirurgeon looks like makes him look like a spider especially with how much he's getting drugs pumped in him like at a moment's notice all the time right um but it's also because what does the spider do in his web? The spider is in charge of the web. You come in the spider's web, the spider is in charge. The spider's it in control. It controls everything. So and Bill, Bill was so- just happy when he was controlling all the emperor's children and doing his experiments. And um, when Fulgrim was letting him be in control of everything, when Fulgrim made him lieutenant commander and all this, that's when everything was fine because he was in control. Yes, and I know we talked about this last time a bit, but this just further reiterated that idea that 
this is not he portrays himself as being this martyr i just want to better prepare humanity i just want to better prepare humanity i just want humanity to be safe i just want humanity to have this even playing field but it's always his new men the new men that he right programmed to be loyal to him the humanity that he designs that he designs that he, he keeps calling that ready I just love it. He kept calling the, you know, he's like, well, I, I supported Fulgrim, support of Horus, because, you know, we were overthrowing a tyrant, but I didn't realize we were getting one tyrant for another. I was like, wow, that's the pot calling the kettle black. Yeah, I was like, are you talking about yourself there, buddy? Yeah. He, and he does, and I can't figure out if he's just so far into denial that he doesn't realize this, because again, to your point, as soon as he sees that they are being disobedient to him, that they are worshiping this other guy. He has they recognize this other guy. He's lost control. Yes. Then all of a sudden, nope. And they've implied this before, but I think we really got to see it in this book. The idea that he loves something so much. It's so amazing. This perfect creation that he has, but oh shit, he's lost control of it. And it's really not being as loyal as he wants, or he's found some sort of imperfection. And you know what? Nah, done, gone. On to the next thing. Which is why his work is never done. That's why his work is never done. And I do love, in the end, when he's talking with Vale Walker. And she's like, yeah, this is... This, this is your dance. Shit. Yes, this is your dance. It'll never... He reminds me of... I think it's Stephen King. I think it's in Stephen King's um, On Writing. Where he says that at some point when you're writing a book, you just have to call it done. Just put the end on it and submit it because otherwise it'll never be done and you will constantly be fixing it and constantly finding imperfections in it. And Bill, I think embodies that like nobody else. 100%. This work is never going to be done. My cat's being very needy. If you can hear her, um, it'll never be done. These people will never be perfect. They're never be ready. There's always going to be something else. You know, and I did it's like that pursuit of perfection that has always been a part of the Emperor's children, which is why I really liked it when Fulgrim was talking about, you know, fixing parts of the ship. And he said, he's, he's like, so he's like, so I made it perfect or at least acceptable. I was like, see, now that's the Fulgrim from Pre-Heresy. That's the Fulgrim that was in the Fulgrim Primarch novel, you know, that we strive for perfection but doesn't mean we're going to get it. Right. Well, and I mean, chasing perfection is the unending task, right? Right. And I'm surprised because Bill definitely casts aspersions on the other Emperor's children. Like, oh, look how decadent and stupid these fools have become trying to find perfection. Meanwhile. While he's creating like, his new man. Right. And I just... The man has such strong blinders on to himself. But to your point, it could be that he really only has one non-sycophant around him, and that's Sakara. Arian and Korag, I don't think they care enough. There's right now, especially... I think Arian does. Kind of, but does he really? Because he definitely hasn't said anything. I don't think he... So right now in the tech world, there's this thing called... Uh, radical candor right which is basically the philosophy that if you care about someone you will give them that hard feedback they need 
I don't ever see Korag doing that. Agori is too subservient to ever do so. Savona, yeah, see, see this Agori reason she doesn't want to get killed. Sakara will just barely approach it and then get reprimanded. I don't know. I see Arian doing that. I don't know. Maybe he's just so easygoing because of all the drugs he's on that he's I, just like, okay, the reason you, why, okay, so um, I misunderstood what you had said. So I don't see Arian doing that. And that's because he's happy where he is. Yes. Same thing with Korog. He's happy where he is. Mm-hmm. He's doing his research. He's doing what he wants to do. You know, there was Arian playing in his hydroponics garden. He's happy. He's doing what yeah. he wants to do. So he's not going to he's not going to rock the boat. So he's just surrounded himself with people who won't give him that hard truth of bruh. You were just like Fulgrim. You were just like Eidolon. You were just like the Radiant King. You're just not as disgusting, outwardly disgusting about it with your drugs and your demons and your sex and rock and roll. And your flush chairs. (laughs) Why did you mention that? Um, Exactly. So I... There's all of that. And then just what an opportunist this man is. Again, God. Jesus. I No one's safe from this man because he, talk about no. survivor. Oh my God. So I, I think say, he would throw a gory under the bus if that meant that he got to survive another day on his own terms. Oh. <laughs> There's a quote from uh, LA Confidential when Guy Pierce is talking with Kim Basinger's character and he's like, well, you know, what did Russell Crowe say about me? And she's like, just that you'd screw your own mother to get ahead. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of Fabulous Bill. I mean, the guy, I, so- Well, but didn't he? Didn't he? He screwed his own father to get ahead? Well, so let's talk about that. So again, I mentioned I didn't really like the book. Twice! I loved the ending of this book. Once everything starts to click into place, I was the whole time I was just like, oh my God. So let's start with the Harlequins. Holy shit. He's figures out that he's in a really tough situation with Trazen. He's been betrayed. Trazen is definitely, he's not going to get his way out of this one. My first thought is when he found himself with Trazen, I was like, dude, you're not shooting your way out of this. No. But no. He recognizes Trazen for what he is immediately, which is with Trazen, it's fine because he doesn't pull a dirty trick on him. He just realizes the language. I love Trazen because I think I've mentioned that whenever I travel, one of my favorite things to do is haggle. So I just pictured Trazen being this haggler, right? I've been giving you, can I trade you some Eldar instead? Sure. (laughs) That sounds nice. Um, And so this idea that when he's just like, I'll give you the Eldar. What are they yours to give? I'm offering them. That's amazing. So right then and there, he takes care of one of his biggest problems. Boom. Got it. Oh, by the way, can I also have the, can I also have the uh, flesh tie or the uh, jean tie tie that you've got? Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. What what, what are you offering? Oh, one of my clone bodies. Sure. Just wheeling and dealing, trying to get everything he wants. Get his cake and eat it too. It's like, well, are you going to help me? Well, you didn't ask for you know, a ride. I just, I'm just gonna let you I go. I loved that. I was like, okay, then one of my, you know, he agrees one of his mind backups. He's like, okay, fine. Which, 
As soon as he said that, I was like, oh, son, I don't think you've thought this one through just because you don't want the inconvenience of having to get out of here. But I mean, that's that type of just survivor mentality. And yes. Well, let's talk more about that in a second, because I want to talk about Fulcrum. On the other hand, you have Fulcrum. You have perfect, beautiful, untouched Fulcrum. And in the beginning, so I'm curious on what you thought, because in the beginning, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm, 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 I tend to be pessimistic by nature. So I was kind of like, it's only a matter of time. In the end, when he's kind of talking to the gland towns and he's rousing them up, some of the language he used, I was like, oh, <laughs> there's the fulgrim we know and love. And then, yes. At the end, when Flavius like bows down and hands him his sword, and Fulgrim is like, "Fuck!" Or when uh, Fabius is mm. like, "Fuck!" There's the Fulgrim that we know and love. Do you think there's even a concept of a pure, uncorruptible Fulgrim? Yes, but he can't Do be. You? Yes, but he can't be near Fabius. And I was really curious where that was going to go because Fabius is like, well, I had this opportunity, this second chance to make Fulgrim be the way that he was. And I, you know, and you and Fulgrim was, you know, kind of weird way, you know, having those memories of what his other self had done in the past. And he's just like, I'm going to do things better. We're not going to you know, worship Slanesh. I want to be reunited with my brothers. I want to find where they are and make everything right again. That's the Fulgrim that always got my attention in um, both Graham McNeil and Josh Reynolds' Fulgrim books. Uh, and same thing with uh, David Geimer's Ferris novel. That's the Fulgrim. The one who has, he's innocent and he has so much love. And that's really what I saw is that he just had so much love and everything he was. Another thing that killed me in this whole thing is that I was having Lorgar flashbacks with how Corferin treated Lorgar. Right. When Bill is yelling, is yelling at him. He's like, teacher, what, what did I do? And then like Lorgar is like, what did I do, teacher? I don't understand. Why are you so mad? There's so, so much of the innocence. And the whole thing, he's like, there's the Fulgrim I knew remembered. Oh, you mean the guy who knew how to rally troops? You're just right. pissed that's not you. Yeah, that's probably part of it. Because you don't have that. And they, and even Gory talks about it, how was, she was trying to stare him down like she does everybody else. But she's like, she right. had a really hard time looking at him in the eye. And there's that whole, the feeling, and they talk about this a lot in the Horus Heresy, of course, you know, with the way that the Primarchs make you feel. Like, you just, you can't look at them had to be subservient mm -hmm. and the melodious voice and how you just want to do whatever you can to please them. Right. And I strongly believe that if Fulgrim had not taken that expedition to Lair, we would not have had what we had, but just neither here nor there, because that is what happened. It was, it was a, a well, a chance that's of actually fate. what I would argue. I would actually argue, is that here or there? So I'm going to pepper that. What I mean by what here or there is that it happened. It was, kind of pre-ordered. Right, right. But what I'm saying is that, so I'm to color where I'm coming from at this, one of my favorite science fiction novels that I ever read was something called To Say Nothing of the Dog by Connie Willis. And basically, she presents this concept of time as a self-correcting thing. 
So they talk about um, Waterloo mm -hmm. and how they try to go back like in simulations and make it so Napoleon wins and they can't because every time they change something, time just naturally makes something else happen so that he's destined to lose. And so one of the things I wondered with Fulgrim, especially because we mentioned this earlier, how he's always in search of perfection, this unattainable concept of perfection. And so, okay, if he doesn't go on that expedition, he doesn't find the lair blade, he doesn't get into any of that shit. Is it possible that then he just finds it in another place in another way? So it's not the lair blade that corrupts him. It's something else because of this concept of him always looking for perfection. As you said, with the ship, it's not perfect, but it's acceptable for now. Is it possible that that's just, and this, and I don't know the answer to this, obviously, because right, I don't right. work for Games Workshop, but is it possible that that's just his destiny? It is in his nature to fall to some type of corruption in the search of that which he can't have. Of course it's possible. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's just, you know, he, to me, Fulgrim is another one of those tragic characters. Very much so. Um, so I, and I guess, you know, we've, one thing we've learned a lot about each other We've actually learned like so much about one another. Just oh my god, from, so much! Just from reading Warhammer 40k, because yes. I was like, why are you so, you know, enamored with Perturbo and Angron and Conrad? He's, you know, Perturbo. I'm now understanding, but Conrad and Angron. And you said, I like broken things. I want to fix broken things. And I obviously have leaning towards the tragic character, right. Fulgrim, Magnus. Ferris. Yeah. Uh, you could argue the lion falls into that too. Yes. You also like the more secretive of the characters, right? With the lion and Elpharius. And yeah, that um, that's probably one of the weird side things about this. So for people who don't know, Carrie and I have been friends for what, eight years now? 2012, yeah. I want to say, something like that. Um, I think, yes, we have probably learned more, just like little minor things about each other's personalities just by reading Warhammer 40K, so. Shit, even our politics. I mean, yes, <laughs> to be honest. Yes, <laughs> yes, that is true, because I would say you and I probably are like a helix where we, we come in at some things, but then we sharply diverge right. on others. And it's really funny because I think we've really noticed that. So and what I'm saying is that Warhammer 40K brings people together in weird ways. <laughs> it does bring people together. I mean, it does. Well, it's like, well, you've said this before, just even with, if you don't want to get into the lore, there is something in this for everybody. Literally everybody. Yes. And so I think that was, so this was, as peppering this, my husband is, he is with Carrie on the fact that, no, no, this is, this is uncorrupted Fulgrim and he's going to be fine. <laughs> he's not going to find the lair blade. He's going to be fine. And so I think this brings out that optimist pessimist thing too, that, Yes. I, I had a very different reaction from you and from my husband. <laughs> well, your husband Fulgrim. actually surprises me. And really? Just, be, just both because he's so anti-traitor with, with all of that. And I, and I remember last time I was at your house, he and I got into it where I was saying, you know, how tragic the ending to Fulgrim, the Horace Heresy novel was. Why are there two books called Fulgrim? This is like <laughs> insane. Yes. The Horace Heresy novel Fulgrim. When he realizes, because the demon that's in the lair sword, of course, leaves his body 
or leaves control of him as soon as the blade meets Ferris's neck so that Fulgrim can deal with what he has done. And he basically goes down in a fetal position, rocking back and forth and then going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Like, what have I done? This is not what I want. I don't want to betray my father. I didn't want to do this. And the demon's like, I can make it all go away. It's like, oh, really? You can't? And it just shoves him down in there. And I was making some comment and just like, well, you know, it's just so sad that, you know, that Fulgrim has been, you know, his real self is trampled down by a demon and Jim was immediately like well he actually takes control later and kicks the demon out so he was always like that so that's what made me think it kind of surprises me that 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 he would say that but I think pre-demon I think at this well I mean you know and who knows like but have a demon in your body what that's going to do to your true self over time either I I I could easily argue that um but Fulgrim, and the thing is, I knew this. I knew this as soon as Fulgrim started to grow up and he realized it was Fulgrim. I was like, there's no way this is going to work because Fulgrim will never be innocent and never be um, what he needs to be if he's with Bill. He'll never be, so he'll never grow. And Bill, he's a Primark. You're only going to keep that under your thumb for so long they're as he discovers primarchs. because he's a Primark, which I accept that I would argue that Corferin had Lorgar under his thumb all the all that time, even as a Primark. Right. But is that something and it makes sense for Lorgar, though, because it is within his nature to worship something. Now, he's not literally worshipping Corferon, but he definitely has parental worship. It's within his nature for that. So that always made sense to me. If it would have been Gulliman or Ferris Manus, I would have called foul. But Lorgar, it's in his nature to worship something. That was his breeding ground, really, for it, too. Mm-hmm. Bulgrim. So one of the things that I always kind of liked is I liked the idea that the Primarchs were these magical and i'm using air quotes there because to be fair they are kind of magical but the idea that there was some sort of je ne sais quoi in them that made them unique the idea that fulgrim that uh, fabio's bile can just just clone them and it's going to be the same thing they're going to have all the same properties and stuff i was like oh but i guess there might have been like the powerpuff girls where professor x accidentally added a special ingredient, chemical, chemical X. X. I always kind of, I just heard that in the narrator's voice. Mm. Um, SpongeBob. Um, just the idea that I always liked this idea that there was this thing in there. And the fact that Fabulous Bill can just, yeah, just broke it out, made another one, no big deal. And the fact that it was just waiting there for him. Right. Just waiting. I know that whole part of it. I was like, "Mm." but so let's talk about, let's talk about Bill's. uh... So Bill has made a deal with Trazen. They come back up to his ship. No big deal. I'm going to give you one of my bodies. He sees the loyal, the emperor's children who are fighting against him are now abasing themselves and weeping before their father. His creations are following him at his back. Like the army that he, clearly says earlier he expected them to follow him but you know 
I guess it's one thing to be like, you're going to lead these guys someday. And then to see them having done it without his permission. That, that's it. The control, disobedience, permission. Not in his house. Um, Because, you know, Fulgrim, he's so confused. And he's just like, but this is what you made me to do. This is what they, you, you said that's what they were going to be. And, you know, and you told Agori to, you know, watch me. Like, this is what we're meant to do. And Bill just fucking loses it. Loses it. I mean, he's just like, you have no idea what my purpose for you was. I'm like, yeah, they do. You're just mad that they assumed to know and they were right. Yes. But the fact that. And I think that was one of those things, kind of like this perfection that he's chasing. The perfection, the new men are never going to be perfect and ready yet, right? I think maybe it was the same thing with Fulgrim. I think Fulgrim was never going to quite be ready to take on this army yet. And Because he has to say when Fulgrim is ready. Never mind the fact that Fulgrim was like a teenager... Because, like I said, the Primarchs, they grow very, very fast. Even naturally, they grew fast. Mm -hmm. He was a teenager. He overthrew his planet's government and saved them all. Yes. And somehow Fabius thought that he was just going to sit there meekly and do what he was told. Right. Well, and I I think to your earlier point, I think Fabulous definitely saw definitely saw what was going on there right like oh you've oh you've overthrown the coup that was going on in this ship now i have all these people are loyal to you it's only a matter of time before you overthrow the leadership on the ship even though fulgrim was calling him teacher and all he wanted to do was please him which is like what right. Fulgrim was doing with the Emperor, he just wanted to please his father. Yes, before he ended up on the pole because of his daddy issues. Yeah. Actually, because so, of the daddy issues, I'm surprised they're not all on the pole, but. <laughs> well, it <laughs> to was be in fair. his nature. Uh, to be fair. Um, so Bill sees all of this looks at Trazen and says, never mind, how about instead of my body, you get this Primarch, a cloned Primarch. Trazen, again, being the consummate wheeler and dealer is like, yeah, that's a hell of a deal. I'll take it. Oh my God, that just killed me. And then Fulgrim staring at him like, what did I do? What did, why are you mad? What did I do wrong? Just So. Oh. And this, again, it's a literal deus es machina. Where God, in this case, Trazen, comes down and just snaps his fingers and fixes everything. And it works. It totally works. It helps that when they show up and there's this battle going on, everyone's like bowing down. Trazen's like, whoa, I think we showed up at an opportune time. (laughs) Well, it's, I look again, I love Trazen. And I just love the idea of him just being this wheeling and dealing kind of used car salesman he's like the collector yes very much like the collector he's just showing up and recognizes a good bargain but doesn't really have a dog in any of these fights because this guy's seen some shit 
Oh so, yeah, he didn't. He didn't care who he gets. He's like, oh, Primark. That does no, sound interesting. No. So I have to say, it did surprise me because at one point, when Trayson is saying to him, like, "Oh, I get you. I've been promised you." I was like, "Guys, there's only like thirty pages left in this book." Like, this and we know there's end. a third book, so yeah. So this is going to end badly. Um, but so let me ask you this: You have Fulgrim, a, a cloned Primark, who is desperate to see his brothers. He was just betrayed by his teacher and loyal son, right? He's going to be a little grumpy. You have Trayson, who doesn't give a fuck really, um, and more importantly. Trazen helped call bring back reboot. What's the over under? Wait, wait. He did? Trazen, yes, Trazen has helped call. That's where Tra call got a lot of his Necron stuff. Okay. Trazen was involved in that. I guess I didn't know that. Denver made a connection. Yes. Um Is that in Call's book? No. Well, they mention it briefly, very briefly in Call's book. They mentioned Trayson, but <laughs> I'm looking at you, Skywatcher Adept. Um, right? <laughs> I think this is in, I can't remember if this was a short story that we read or if this is Codicy, one of the Codices. Okay. So intrepid listeners, please remind me. Um, but yes, yeah, so Trayson was involved in that. What's the over under on Trayson looking around and being like, hey, Robbie G's doing pretty well. Do you guys want another one? I don't know. Because I have this feeling that Fulgrim's just going to be locked away. Like, that was just one little problem solved. That way we can stop speculating over, you know, an uncorrupted Fulgrim and how that would work out and all that. But, you know, I, right. re but I read comics. And that's just ripe from either... Later down the road this year, next year, 10 years from now, I mean, like, remember that Necron King has a uncorrupted version of Fulgrim? That remember that one time? To bring him back? So, okay, so let's ask the over-under on Trazen just being like, you know what? I don't really care, and I think it'd be kind of fun to see what happens. I'll just, like, and again, not really understanding that portion of it, right? And Oh, yeah, that guy's doing good. Do you want another one? Like, I got another one. Just like, but what are the implications of an uncorrupted Fulgrim coming back? Well, it would depend on where he went. I mean, if he went to go find his brothers. Now, does he go and find Mortarian or does he go and find Reboot? I mean, that's... Does he go find Robbie G? Right. I mean, or does he go find Magnus or does he go find Robbie G? Does he go find... <laughs> Name oh, this gosh. demon prince... I think he has a lot more choices on the other side, right? Like, just well, like, yeah. find Angron, like, or Robbie G. I mean, I don't think he'd go after the demon princes because he even talks about how the mistakes that they made and he's going to correct right. all that. Because, um, like, okay, so the only Primarch that is alive and we know where he is is Robbie G. Right. So does he just go find Reboot? But can you even imagine that conversation? No. But like, does he start off saying, "Oh my God. So, um, I know I cut you, and I'm so sorry." But that was the other well, me. But does he like? Does he even have those that far of memories, or does he just kind of have like an idea of like what happened before the heresy? Like, does he show up and Robbie's angry and he's like, "Whoa, time out! What's going on?" 
really sorry if my other self hurt you. Does Robbie just destroy him on the spot? Because because he's a clone. We don't clone shit. Right. It could be interesting. Or does he not? Does he maybe realize? Does Trazen maybe even tell him or somebody tell him and be like, so it would be like a really bad idea. Or does Fulgrim talk to Robbie? Instead of finding his brothers, goes to find his father. Does he go to the Emperor or does he go to OG Fulgrim? Well, that would wake OG Fulgrim up. Can you imagine? Oh my God. I. Oh my God. So. OG Fulgrim would not be amused. No. OG Fulgrim would not. Especially when he sees how pretty he used to be. Like, I will, but does he think he's prettier now? Now that he's a snack? Snack. <laughs> no step on snack, Carrie. No step on snack. <laughs> I, I think he thinks he's prettier now. I don't know. He might think he is, but he hasn't seen himself. He hasn't seen his old self or, in a while either. What if old... What I totally imagine Fulgrim going mirror, mirror on the wall. <laughs> But like, if what if Clone Grim is tiptoeing through the warp, and he's one of the missing Primarchs? Like he goes into the webway, and he happens to con across the con. Hey, dude, how's it going? Or Dorn, like, oh man, your hand. What happened? Oh, remember that one time that we fought on the walls? Oh shit, that was me, wasn't it? Anyways, so you have this, which is very interesting. But something even bigger happens. So, having finally defeated the space clowns once and for all, um, well, her troop, he doesn't really, well, it's, they, they're very non, I guess they can't tell what Bailwalker is. Um, they, after defeating Bailwalker's troop, Bailwalker comes to Bill, delivers some sass, and then gives him the location of Kimura. To what purpose? Okay, so what is Komora? Komora is like, I feel like I the should last. It's the last of the Eldar, the big Eldar cities. Okay. Uh, the, the Jukari, I believe. Yeah, I believe it's the Jukari one. So there's going to be like a little bit of information and stuff there. Why would an Eldar do that? That's a really great question. Because if you remember... She says, she says to him, like, you are not, you're not part of my story anymore. You're not part of the story that I tell, which would be hilarious. Like, again, if we're fighting with Rent and all of a sudden you fight and I'm like, well, you're not in Rent anymore. Now you're in Oklahoma. So it is, Kamora is the dark star and I don't know for yeah so why would you send him there for one thing is it just because you're like oh there's another group of harlequins and they'll definitely take care of you so you're somebody else's problem now or is it because there's something i i can't figure out another reason for it i really can't wrap my mind around it do you think that's what man flare is going to be about maybe maybe it could be i mean it would have to be right I I would like very much 
if Manslayer did not have any more Emperor's children trying to bring him back into the fold. So I said this to you earlier today before I even finished the book, because yes, I did do a last minute thing today and finished reading it today. Um, this series started to remind me of The Hunger Games. And what I mean by that is not that I'm saying that it's about a bunch of, you know, kids in a little arena fighting to the death for food. I'm saying is like the first two. There books. was a love triangle though with a gory fabulous and Fulgrim, but it was like a not like a not like a traditional love, like a more like you know. Anyways, continue. So the first two books, when I read the first two books of the Hunger Games, um, as we all know, the first story, whether you've seen the movie or not, you have an idea. The second book is like a redux. Yeah, it literally is. Yes, it has a different ending, but the pieces to get you there are about the same. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, I'm going to kind of let that go because I kind of understand why the second book was set up this way. But then the third book is literally the same thing again. And by then I was like, okay, I'm I'm over all this. I'm just totally over this. So I'm really hoping Manflayer does not do that and do the same thing where it's where it's basically like... Bill is minding his own business and then someone comes along, forces him along to go on this journey because they all want mm-hmm. him to bring the, you know, make the third grade again, or he wants to make the third grade again. And then it all kind of falls apart, but then he gets this other piece and learns a little bit more about himself to move on to the next thing. We need to move away from that at this point. Yes. I I think that was actually the reason that I did not like, I'm going to be really honest and say I really didn't. I liked parts of the first 300 or so pages, but it really was a rehashing of the first book. It was. And the last 150 pages was just so amazing. Pretty much once the Red Scimitars show up, which I think we talked about, which I think I told you or I told Carrie earlier that when they launched the Ursus Claws, I lost my shit because I was like, that's a world eater thing. That's amazing. And Lotara Sarah would be so proud. And then later when they're like, this is insane. Only Angron ever did this. I was like, yes, queen. <laughs> Especially when Arian was like, they're actually pretty useful. I'm just saying. Well, right. Anyway. The scimitars even talk about how they've modified them. So that yes. they're not as insane. They're a little safer. Right. A little. Well, but, I mean, safer for them. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Um, yes. But, so here's the thing that makes here's the thing in the third book you have a lot of things set up in this book i think especially that should make it different now you maybe i don't know the whole thing with ramos and the cacophony growing this wraith bone and now veil walker sending him to kimura i feel like there's a lot in there that'll be break away from the mold as it were i hope so if that's even what man flayer is about Right. Which, you know, don't slay people. That's what the Night Lords do. Have you seen his coat? Maybe he, well, you know what, to be fair, he probably needs a new coat. Because he does talk about how it gets pretty fucked up in the melee and the fight. So. Yes, how they slice away some of the screaming faces. Yeah. So I guess we know, yeah, he's going to have to make a new coat. I really do kind of now hope the book ends with him getting a new coat. This is fabulous. I can't Sorry. deal with the man flesh 
coats, furniture. Yeah. The cape you know and what? scalps. The furniture, the furniture. Oh, God. And there's a scene when Savona goes to see Korag and his his quarters smell so bad, which is hilarious to me. When she walks in and she's like, oh, God. Um, but she pulls out the handkerchief made of Eldar scalps that's perfumed. Oh, God. First off, scalps? Like, all I picture is hair, and you're going to, like, put that to your fit. Nope. Y'all, the Emperor's children are nasty. And we read a book this year that involved some, like, group, the Emperor, the Death Guard shitting on the Mechanicus. That was less disgusting. It's true. Lords of Silence, anything that happened in there with their diseases and all that. You know what? Bring on the death whales from uh, yes! from Plague War, okay? I can handle that so much better than making a cape out of scalps. It just sounds weird. Actually, so I want to say something really quickly I forgot to mention for what stood out to me because this is one of the, the, the cognitive disconnects that I get. So you remember in Lords of Silence when they talk about the garden planet? Yes. And he talks about his garden and blah, 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 blah. And you're like, oh, that sounds so nice. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, no, gross. Oh, gross. I have the same thing with the cacophony when they talk about singing the song and how beautiful the song is. And I'm like, right. oh, how nice. No, no, this is some fucking nonsense. <laughs> this would sound awful. This literally kills people. Right. I have a big cognitive disconnect with that. It's like, ooh, songs, pretty. Well, it's like even in the horse heresy with the war singers yes and they were saying like how awful that sound was i mean it's the same thing it's like oh they're singers but it's not very no. pretty. <laughs> yeah no yeah not not a big fan of that particular one um yeah the emperor's children are so gross i i'm down for the third book though i'm at i will say i am the but first... i need some time Yes. I need it's to actually, mourn. I, I'm so sorry. We'll see. So on one hand, we need time for you to mourn. But on the other hand, I'm like, I need to read the third book to make sure Arian's okay. Because if Arian is not okay, I'm not going to be okay. Well, I, I need I need him and Korag to be okay. Korag and his little dog, and Pazuz. too. Pazuz. I told my husband, I was like, the next animal that comes into this house is being named Pazuz. He was okay with it. You guys, it was the description when Savona is talking with Korag and he talks about how the eye stalks swivel over there. I was like, well, this is the greatest character ever. Character of the year. I saw that he's just kind of bounding after Korag and Bill's is like, oh my god, ew, he's eating the ship. And and then Korag picks him up and is just like, he's a good little boy. Yes, he is. Well, I love that when he's like, ew, get him out of here. And Korag's like, he was a gift. <laughs> that doesn't mean he's not nasty, dude. Well, you know, kind of remind me of like Lords of Silence again, like how they would coddle the Nurglings. Well, actually, I laughed really hard about that. My husband did too when he when he pulls because Pazuz goes to like attack Savona, and he's like, "No, go play with the Nurglings." <laughs> oh my god! Of course he has Nurglings. Of course he does. Well, he and said I he's making like, diseases, so I mean, right? Pretty much. 
I don't know what it says about me, you guys, that I just gravitate towards the Lords of the Lords of Silent, the Death Guard characters. I see one and I'm like, oh, you seem friendly. Probably because they're kind of happy. They really are. Korag just seems so congenial. In that I'm murdering people in awful ways kind of way. Right. Yeah. Anyways, because we spent a month reading about the very repugnant Emperor's children, we are going to course correct and go all the other way <laughs> and read an oldie, The Emperor's Gift by A.A. Ron Dembski Bowden. A.A. Ron. Now, A.A. Ron. This is. I've had this on my to read list for a while because, I mean, it has two things going for it. One, it's got Grey Knights, and I love Grey Knights, and it has ADB. So this should be amazing. So, like, again, like we said, we're kind of going through a backlog right now because nothing new is being published. So, in a way, thanks, Corona. You're making me read books that I've been wanting to read. So actually along those lines, some very kind soul commented on YouTube the other day. And before we read this one, I am actually going to force myself to finish Requiem Infertile as well. So we're getting through our backlog, you guys. This book, though, this is going to be an interesting one because it was first published in 2012. So this is an older one, which is probably how long I've had this on my want to read as well. But then like other stuff kept coming out and I just kind of never did. I think anyway, I, I, I bought this on one of my random trips to the Citadel. I was like, I'm excited. I'm like, ooh, Grey Knights. Yes, uh, I mean, and Armageddon. So mm. I don't know why, but for some reason, so the Armageddon setting is always happy to me. I'm always so like, ooh, Armageddon. Armageddon. So that would still be in the 30,000th millennium, like 32, 30. Mid, yeah. Should be, at least. Okay. I don't know, though. I guess we'll find out. And I'm really excited. The one I down the one down note about this is that we definitely want people to read along with us. If you haven't or comment along, it is not available in audiobook. Wah, wah, wah. Does the Black Library not even have a, a audio version? Oh, okay. No, I don't. Well, you know what? Let me double check that really quickly. But I don't think they did. I think they just have it in ebook format. Okay. They do. They just have it in ebook. Um, if you are, if you're old school like us and like the paperback, uh, you can get the paperback still from Amazon. Oh yeah. But yes, that was that was a little disappointing <laughs> to me. I was like, oh, sorry guys. Yeah, because I know so we have a, a few audiobook only people. Yes, we do. Although, but then again, you guys are forced to be at home. So what else are you doing? Read the book. It's true. Unfortunately. Unfortunately, indeed. You want to take us out, Carrie? Yeah, I think I will. So you have listened to the Warhammer 40k book club episode regarding Fabulous Bill, Clone Lord. Be sure to join us for our next book, The Emperor's Gift by Aaron Dinsky Bowden. We are an unofficial book club and not affiliated with the Black Library or any of its affiliates. You can find both the vidcast and podcast on our website, wh40kbookclub.com. If you like this episode, please like, subscribe, give a review, and all those good things to the vidcast on YouTube or the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. And 
we have a Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com, WH40K Book Club, where for just a few bucks a month, you can get a bonus episode every month. Or there's also a tip jar tier if you just want to support us and just kind of throw this a few bit of change our way. We appreciate all of it. We do. So and uh, our site also has articles about our adventures in reading other Warhammer 40k books and short stories outside of the book club books. So please stay a while and read from a clag. Good night, everybody. Good night. was hosted by Jen Bozier and me. Recording and editing of both the vidcast and podcast were done by me. The book club questions and discussion format were done by Jen, and all of our music is by Jingle Punks. The Warhammer 40k book club is a Warhammer LLC production. This is a Voxcast that even he, Cato Sicarius, would approve.